Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Frank Diaz. He's an associate professor of music education at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. He's also a conductor with degrees in music education and conducting from the University of South Florida and Florida State University. Frank previously held teaching positions at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, the University of Oregon, and school districts in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Florida. And he's an active researcher on some topics that are still a little bit outside the box for a music educator, like mindfulness, meditation, contemplative science, and teacher wellness. And Frank is particularly interested in how all of these can affect and improve the teaching and performance of music. Frank Diaz recently joined me for a conversation in the WFIU studios. Frank Diaz, welcome to Profiles. Oh, thanks for having me, Aaron. My first question might end up being my only question <laughs> that I need to ask you, <laughs> sure. considering how deep the rabbit hole can go. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that is, what is mindfulness? Hmm. I think I'm going to start by saying it depends on who you ask, of course. There are several definitions of it. I will give just a tiny little overview of a few of them and then maybe talk a little bit about what I think it is. So for most people, I think, you know, there's sort of a popular definition of mindfulness where you look on, you know, Read Time magazine and you see a picture of somebody on the cover with, you know, meditating on the beach. And so I think there's sort of the popularity that mindfulness is a stress reduction technique. There's some truth to that, although that's not what mindfulness was originally intended for. And then there's sort of all sorts of in-between definitions. The psychological world defines mindfulness a few different ways. And then, of course, there's the religious component of mindfulness, which is it's a practice that was used in Buddhist traditions, basically for the cultivation of insight, at least according to some sources. And insight into what? Insight into reality, insight into yourself, insight into your mind, you know, and then the way those things overlap. So there's various definitions. I try to use the more psychological idea of mindfulness situated in a kind of ethical framework and context. So I define mindfulness essentially as a set of skills, a set of mental skills and attitudes that you can use to change your mind, change your disposition, change the way your cognition works for the particular aim of suffering less. That ethical component, um, you know, I'm doing this not because I want to be uh, a star athlete necessarily or be a better sharpshooter like what's happening in some military context. I'm not doing this because I want to be awesome. Exactly. Yeah. Now, that's not what everybody thinks mindfulness is. To me, that's what it is. And particularly, they are a set of practices that deal with self-regulating your attention. So they have to do with how you attend to things a set of practices that help you understand yourself and how you create a self, the mechanisms involved in that and how that changes your perception of the world. So it's sort of, you know, how's my self filtering my reality for me? And so we call that self-regulatory. And then sort of broader, a broader conception of it is a set of skills that are cultivated for well-being. I don't know if that's too wonky, but... Um, it seems like there's a lot to get into. Yeah, there's there. a lot you to can, get into. You can yeah. <laughs> drill pretty deep. But in particular, it seems as if lately, and your studies are a part of this, that there is evidence to suggest that mindfulness can have significant positive effects on 
X on various yeah. things, like yep. you say. And of course, one of the things that you focus on is the effect on music, on mm -hmm. the teaching of music, mm -hmm. on the performance of music, yep. on one's apprehension of music. Yeah. What were some of the things that first led you to strongly conclude or at least believe enough to yeah. pursue that mindfulness could have these large, significant positive effects on music? Yeah. So it starts with me way before anything musical happened. Um, I like to tell a story, which I, I hope I'm remembering correctly, because I think after, you know, I'm 43 now. Uh, a lot of this happened when I was a 12, 13 years old. So my recollection of this is as follows. Uh, at about 12 or 13, I was having some difficulties in school, and I was essentially uh, prescribed a lot of medication to deal with that. And at some point decided the medication was not doing what it needed to do. And I had a teacher introduce me to meditation in a kind of stealth manner. Stealth meditation. Uh, yeah. So, so, yeah, it's stealth meditation, which we'll get into later because I think in many ways, one of the definitions of mindfulness in the psychological literature is a capacity that everybody has that isn't necessarily something that has to be cultivated or religious or, or even have a name. It's a cognitive capacity, right, to be in the present moment to attend to things as they are, to monitor for the story-making part of yourself. What are the layers of things that we're adding to something to make them worse rather than what's actually in front of us? And so this teacher kind of introduced me to that aspect of mindfulness by having me notice my own mind. The idea that I could just flip the switch and go backwards and go, what's going on in here? Rather than there's something inherently wrong with the world. She actually, what she did is she was an English teacher and she had me hang out with her son. Uh, I'd go to her house. Her son and I were about the same age. And she said, hey, why don't you come over? And we do this thing before we have dinner where we um, we kind of just sit and watch our thoughts. And I thought that's weird, but let's do it. You know, so she'd have me sit there and I'd notice. She said, you notice you have a lot of thoughts going on. Yeah. And she said, I wonder what would happen if you just watched them instead of following them. You know, I was trying to pursue them all the time. And yeah, even at 12, I thought that was really interesting. Like, wait, I can watch my thoughts? I'm not my thoughts? <laughs> Okay. So it started giving me a little bit of distance. And I would notice that not only could I watch my thoughts and, you know, like literally things appeared in my mind stream, like, you know, images. I, I can watch that and not do anything. Then I realized that I could also notice my emotions. Like she would say, how do you feel right now? Just notice that. And she didn't tell me, change it, push it away. Or you just kind of watch it. So that watching capacity started to have an effect on me. And I think over time, you know, she would extend it a little bit longer and have me focus on my breath, just little things that basically said, I have some control over my ability to attend and how I frame what I'm attending to, right? I didn't use those words at 12. And something magical happened. I started feeling better. I started noticing things differently. And I want to be really clear when I say this, that I do not in any way think, oh my goodness, that means people who are on medication for anxiety or depression, which I was at that time, should let go of all of that. It's not what I'm saying. I think those play a critical role in mental health, of course. I'm saying that for me at that particular point in time, I think I was overdiagnosed maybe or incorrectly diagnosed. And so I started to feel this capacity to mind my experience without pushing it away. That helped my reactivity and also gave me the sense that I could choose, in a sense, how I framed situations. That's essentially one form of mindfulness. And this had an amazing effect on me, and I eventually got off medication, and I continued to meditate pretty seriously 
eventually I figured out this was meditation, right? And at about, you know, at 14, I would do a version of this. And then, you know, I would watch Kung Fu on TV and say, I think that's what those guys are doing. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought, well, maybe I'll find it through martial arts. And I did a little bit of Taekwondo. And of course, they didn't really emphasize that that much. And so for many years, I worked on meditating sort of informally and reading books. Over time, what hit me was, oh, my goodness, this is not only a life practice, this also can affect how I perform. So I had a really serious problem with performance anxiety in college. And I don't know why it took me so long to go, wait a minute, I meditate. Why don't I meditate before I play? Why don't I use the same skills that I use as a meditator for my life in my music, in my preparation to perform? And this happened after a really bad onset of performance anxiety during my senior recital in which my legs began to shake uncontrollably. And so I did, and it had an effect. I mean, it really started to slowly changed the way that I viewed my stress reaction in certain situations. And then I started working with students. And uh, as a public school teacher, noticed, my goodness, they're suffering too. Maybe I can teach them some of these things. And I started doing that with some of my students down in Florida as a high school orchestra teacher. And it was really effective. And here was my non-scientific, I'll get to the science in a minute, my non-scientific, <laughs> yes, this definitely works. I thought as I did these little breathing and focus exercises that I had adopted from, you know, reading John Kabat-Zinn and sort of my own practices, I thought, okay, I can get them to do this. And, you know, they're teenagers, so you never know what they're really thinking. I mean, their faces don't always convey their real emotions. So some were like, yes, this is great. But then I thought, this is cheesy. I'm going to pull it away. I'm not going to do it anymore. So I pulled it away. And about two days later, they start coming up to me, my students saying, why? Why did you stop doing the boga, is what we call the band yoga or <laughs> orchestra yoga? And I said, I thought you guys thought it was silly. No, 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 we love this. But one student in particular, I remember very clearly, just a kid you would never expect because of their background and because of how they behave, that they would be interested in this kind of thing. I thought this kid probably thinks this is foo-foo, you know, uh, hippie stuff. And he came in my office one day and he said, can I speak to you? And he shut the door and he said, you know, Mr. Diaz, I really, I really want you to go back and do those exercises again. It is the only time in my day where I have just enough space for my worries and concerns that I can choose a different path, that I can engage or do things differently. And it's so meaningful for me to be able to do that as I do music. And I thought, wow. This student said that in so many words? Yeah, much simpler version of that. But basically, yeah, I was a sophomore trumpet that, player. That seemed remarkably self-possessed. I was blown away. I didn't, I didn't know this kid had thoughts. I mean, I hate to say that. I, I, he never expressed this much to me. Just a nice kid that played an instrument in the band. In any case, it got me really interested in the science. And when I went back to Florida State to get my PhD, which was kind of a blend of cognitive science and conducting and music education and all the different ways that music ed lets you pick and choose a lot of disciplines, I got very interested in the science, which was just starting to come out. It was 2007, and there were maybe a handful of articles that were dealing with mindfulness in a scientific way. There was some research happening in places like the Center for Healthy Minds, which wasn't that at the time, Richard Davidson's lab, which is now Center for, uh, is Center for Healthy Minds. Now, I think it was just neuro, neuroaffective lab. I can't remember. Anyway, when I thought people are studying this scientifically, and the data started to emerge and get stronger and stronger that engaging in mindfulness over long periods of time did change the way that you felt you were processing the world 
And then more significantly, I think at that time was you start to see changes in neural functioning and the way that the brain sort of wires and responds to things that became indicative of changes happening that were not just, you know, I'm just reporting this to you. They're actually neurological changes that are happening. That's what convinced me. Well, no, the experience has convinced me. The science helped me say, okay, I can talk about this with people now who are skeptical, all of this stuff. And maybe this might be a door for them to enter. The other side of me is, of course, I'm a person who is, I try to finally balance my impulses and my intuitions with hard data. I don't believe you can reduce one to the other, but it does help for me to see, wow, there's some empirical data here telling me there might be something to this. And of course, now we're on the other side of it, which is mindfulness cures everything and mindfulness changes things in the brain that we have no business reporting about it. At this point, the evidence for what mindfulness does is still, I would say, in progress. It's a new field. It's early days. It's early. And we are certainly seeing things in the profession, the neurosciences and psychology and clinical practice that are indicative that mindfulness is certainly helpful. It might even be more helpful than other things. What we're starting to figure out now, it's helpful for very specific things, depending upon what kind of mindfulness you engage in. And we have to still be very cautious about taking these results and turning them into mindfulness is a panacea for everything, which I think, of course, it isn't. So, wow, that's a that's a long one. But I think you just asked me about music, but you know, I, I went into that long spiel. I said the rabbit hole could go <laughs> the ra- it's deep. A, it's a deep rabbit hole, yeah. Frank Diaz. Conductor, teacher of Zen meditation, and associate professor at the Jacobs School of Music. You are listening to Profiles from WFIU. I was wondering if you could describe a mindful body scan. And yeah. I'd ask you to conduct us through one, but I'm worried <laughs> that some folks might be operating heavy machinery as they listen to <laughs> yeah. this, so it might not be the best idea. <laughs> Yeah, some people uh, sometimes ask me if they should do mindfulness while they're driving or other things. I said, no, no, not a good idea. Yeah, you should be driving full. Sure. Drive full when you're driving. <laughs> so the body, the body scan, I think my first encounter with the body scan was reading about it in some of John Kabat-Zinn's books. And so John Kabat-Zinn, who I believe to be the founder of the modern mindfulness movement, you know, Massachusetts General Hospital, working with patients that were either suffering with chronic pain or dealing with terminal diseases. And basically, there's not much more medicine can do, but you can maybe help them cultivate a different mind state in relationship to this. The body scan is one of the tools that he used. And there's some great footage online of some great interviews online of him talking about the body scan and what happened. They would lie on the floor, right? So here's what a body scan is. What you're doing is you're taking your attention and you are bringing it to different aspects of your body, different sensations in your body, physical sensations. So it could be the breath as a focus of attention. It could be your left toe. It could be your pinky toe. It could be the feeling of sensation at the tip of your nose. What a body scan does is it systematically moves your awareness through different parts of your body, either with a very narrow focus, you know, my ankle, or a wider focus, sort of like my leg. As you're doing that, what we think might be happening is that you're training your attention in several different ways. One is I can choose what I attend to. So you're practicing sort of choosing. And the great thing about the body, at least the way I teach body scan, is the body's always in the present moment. 
it's not in the future. It's not in the past. It's always existing right here. When we focus on our thoughts, we can tend to get overly involved with the idea that I have an image or a projection in my head of the future or a memory of the past, and it's occurring right now. And of course, those memories are rarely just neutral. They usually have some emotional concomitant to them. So I can be thinking about some awful thing that's going to happen in the future, and I'm having this conversation with you. But that thing, that image is very strong, and it's changing my reaction to you. I might not even be aware of it, of how it's changing me. So in the body scan, you train attention to look at the body, to feel the body in its different components. And you get sensations like the physical sensations in specific parts of your body. For example, does it tingle? Does it feel hot? Is it heavy? Is it numb? And what you do during that time is you engage with a sort of curiosity about what signals your body is sending you. And that curiosity is interesting because what we typically do, especially people who have problems with being too much in their heads, they forget they have a body. And they forget that the body is an important component of our experience. Our bodies normally give us signals about our environment that we, we got to be careful not to ignore. It's where we feel danger often. It's where we get an intuitive sense of a situation where we need to read people. The body is sending us signals. And often if you ask, if I asked you right now, Aaron, where do you feel when you're really angry? Where do you feel it? And I asked you to point to it. Where would you point? Well, probably always to my head. Yeah, you might say your head, but I bet if I got you really angry... I mean, really made you really angry. You might feel, well, it's my head, but it's also here. It might be my heart, or maybe it's my jaw. And what we often notice is people over time will say, I don't know why I'm so tense. <laughs> you know, I'm projecting. And people say, are you angry? No, I'm not angry. It's just my shoulders are tense. Oh, my goodness, I'm angry, and I didn't even know it. And so the body scan is a way of learning to tune into those signals and realize my body will often send me a signal before my cognitive processing has kicked in. Right? And I'm using the word cognitive loosely here, right? So I might be speaking with you and you might say, Frank, are you okay? And I'll say, I'm fine because my head's telling me I'm fine. But what you might be noticing is this sort of underlying anger or tension in my body or something's wrong. And I might not even be aware of it, but it's certainly filtering through the way I speak to you, right? So it's a sort of a, a self-body awareness exercise that may give us clues as to what our relationship with our body is like. That's a body scan. And it's one of the components that we use I use it in education to sensitize teachers to, um, before you walk in a room, or as musicians, what's your body telling you? Is it aroused? Is it, are you really highly tense? Is it too low? Are you angry? Do you have physiological components of anger right now, or stress, or something else? You should be aware of that before you enter a room, because undoubtedly, when you start communicating with other people, they're going to notice they notice before they notice. In other words, it's not a conscious noticing. It's a sort of, you think of our biological organisms, homo sapiens, sapiens, 40,000 years at least, right? Before we could verbally communicate, I'm sure we were taking a lot of cues through body language and through our environments. And so I think that's still part of us. It's part of our evolution as a species. And we have sort of shut it down. We don't communicate with that part of ourselves. It seems at the least for any performance discipline, body language is such an important part of it. Absolutely. And yet, if I'm understanding you correctly, it seems like a lot of people who are well-versed in this don't have very good control over it. Right, exactly. Well, they're not even aware of it. In some of the studies that we've done, actually one recent one, one key finding we're asking a student who did a five-day mindfulness thing, and it was body scans. And we asked them at the end, well, what changed, if anything? And they said, you know what I noticed is when I practice now, I notice where there's tension in my body. 
I could still practice, but I noticed that tension. And the minute I noticed that tension, I can sort of let it dissolve on its own, which allows me to practice more efficiently. It gives me an idea of where my body is in space and time. Because, I mean, I hope I'm, well, no, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I mean, my view and a lot of what we study in the lab is that cognition is embodied. It is not just in your head. You're not just representing the world passively as a computer. You're situated in the world and your body is one of the mediums in which you take in the world. So to completely ignore that, especially in the performing arts, my goodness, how did we get there? <laughs> how did we get there? It's completely top down. Uh, you know, what's a dancer doing the dancer is not representing themselves in their head as they dance. They are dancing. They are intelligently moving their body with a sense of intention and awareness. And musicians are, in a way, dancers. I mean, we are. Part of what we do is dance. We move our bodies in a particular way for the sake of expression. Even if that's not the focal point of our expression, it certainly informs it. So that's one way we can sort of relate this idea of mindfulness, body awareness, training that for personal reasons and for health reasons, but also for our work as teachers and performers. A few moments ago, you mentioned the lab. The lab, yeah. And I imagine this is the music cognition lab yeah. here at IU. Yeah. And as I understand, it is unique in this still growing, still young discipline of mindfulness, science, and scholarship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Music and Mind Lab, which I run with my colleague, Peter Mixa, who is a specialist in self-regulated practice and a lot of really fascinating things. We run this lab. They started it before I got here, Peter and Daphne Tan, who uh, left our faculty a year ago. I think she's at University of Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. Sorry, Daphne, if that's not where you are and you're listening to this. You went to Canada. We know that. <laughs> um, so they started this lab before I got here, about a year. And when I came in, because of my expertise or, or my interests, I would say, that's a better term for it, started adding the idea of looking at mindfulness. So I do a lot of that. Peter also is involved. Pete is involved in that a little bit, and so is Daphne. We have a study coming up in psychology and music looking at whether mindfulness affected the performance of particular emotions by singers using like what we call a neutral melody. We'll get If you want to ask, I'll tell you how we figured that out <laughs> later. So we are doing that. There's also another study, an ongoing study that we're doing uh, looking at the experiences of music educators, young music educators, so freshmen who are coming in. And their experiences over five days of doing mindfulness and how that affects them from a phenomenological perspective, how they reported experience, and how that relates to some of the new models of mindfulness that are coming out from a field called neurophenomenology, which I'm very interested in. So that's what's going on in the lab. The lab does a lot of other things as well. So mindfulness is one of the key things. But I would say there, as far as I know, there is no lab and again, I could be wrong because these things change so quickly. I don't know of any lab in the country that is looking at music and mindfulness in this specific way right now. And so in that sense, we're kind of hopping on the train early and seeing what we can discover. And my goodness, we work at Jacob School, right? We have 1,600 potential subjects, if you will. That's quite a sample <laughs> for studies. That's Yeah, right. And we have people who are, you know, high-level performers of different disciplines. And uh, so it's kind of exciting to be here and have some availability to that population to study this particular phenomena. Now, in one of your recent studies that I was reading, mm -hmm. uh, subjects gave feedback about their expectations and their concerns. Yeah. And fear of judgment came up oh, a lot. Yeah. The term non-judgmental, I've noticed, shows up a lot in your own definition of mindfulness. Yes. Yeah. So in higher education in <laughs> general and in high-level music instruction in particular, and maybe even all of the corpus of art music, Yeah. Isn't at least some form of judgment unavoidable? That's a great point. I think we have to get into the, what the meaning of judgment is, non-judgment in this 
context and then sort of what we mean by judgmental or evaluative. I can be aware of something and note things about it. I can make a value judgment. I can say that note was out of tune. My performance here indicates that I am not yet comfortable with articulating this passage the way that I would want it to articulate. That's information. No problem with that. If I were to tell you something, if I give you feedback that's like that, that's giving you information and that's letting you sort of frame how you want to use that information. What we tend to do is take that and create self-judgments. In other words, it's not just I missed that note. It becomes I missed that note and I'm a bad musician. And because I'm a bad musician, everybody else knows I'm a bad musician and now everybody's talking about me. Not only are they talking about me, they're probably not going to let me play in their band orchestra or invite me to the recital or invite me. And so now I'm going to lose that opportunity. But wait, I'm not only going to lose that opportunity, I'm going to end up destitute. I'm going to end up in the middle of Florida where I grew up in a shack somewhere because goodness, I missed that note. <laughs> and so there is appropriate awareness of you have a goal and a mindset. I want to do this. And then there's this sort of non-judgmental approach to it where you're not saying everything goes. You're saying, based upon my intentions and my goals, how am I performing? And getting in that space as musicians is very difficult because we believe, and I think this is part of the problem of why so many musicians suffer from performance anxiety and issues with feeling threatened socially by other, uh, we'll get into social threats later if you want, is that the judgment becomes self-judgment, reified self-judgment where we believe it's there forever, like this is a personal characteristic. And we believe the only way we can be motivated is, is in a state of fear. I don't buy that. And if that is the case, if the case is we have to be fearful and judgmental to the point that we attack ourselves and other people in order to succeed in this field, then the broader ethical question for me is, is it worth it? Do you really want to be a 50-year-old person playing music somewhere after years and years of practicing who hates themselves for the sake of music? I think most people would answer no. I think what most people want is a way of motivating themselves in an effective way, in a way that's going to help them move towards goals that they want, but not necessarily coming from the perspective of fear and avoiding judgment. That's what non-judgmental means in this case. Developing a neutral disposition towards what is going on in your life and your reality, and then comparing it meaningfully to an intention or an ethical goal even that is life-sustaining and, and meaning-sustaining rather than pushing away fear or judgment. I don't know if that makes more sense. It does make sense, but it, it seems like there's an inherent challenge here because that not all of Homo sapiens sapiens were eaten by saber-toothed tigers proves that fear is a very powerful and successful motivator. It is. And also that in music and in artistic disciplines, you're dealing with heightened states of both mm -hmm. the performer and ideally the audience. Right. So it seems that there are forces aligned against you in this quest. They're completely aligned against me. I won't balk at the idea that I am presenting a cultural shift. I'm advocating for a shift in culture in our profession that some people don't like and that they can't come around to understanding or even enjoying. The idea that you can have a successful, happy life as a musician and do really well without being scared or self-judgmental all the time is something most people have not been introduced to and it probably can't get into at this point in their life. However... I'm not convinced that's the case. I am thoroughly convinced that being able to note what's going on in your life with a sense of neutral, you know, I wouldn't say detachment because you still care about it, but being able to step back and go, here's an easy way of thinking about that. 
Is that thought useful? Is that thought useful? So what's a more useful thought? I missed that note and I need to get it correct next time in order to express what this composer is wanting to express and what I want to express. Or, holy crap, I better get this right or it's the end of my life. Which one of those thoughts is more useful? Now, you might say that the fear motivation one will definitely, it'll get you, it, it works, like you said. I think over time that type of motivation might work but has incredibly detrimental effects on your well-being. And I don't know that it enhances your playing any better than the other thought, which is, I just need to fix this. We perpetuate, I believe, a myth in our culture that comes from years of misunderstanding psychology and psychological frameworks that human beings are always motivated by fear and withdrawal behavior. It's fight or flight all the time, rather than moving towards goals that are humanistic, provide meaning for somebody, provide a sense of communication and connection with other people. I think both are true. I just don't think one is the default. I think we have the capacity to do both. Dealing with Jacob's students, many of who come here who are here because they have used fear probably as a big motivator, is difficult to break down. I will tell you that after having them in class for a while, you start to see that fall apart a little bit and you start to see people emerge from this saying, maybe if I framed my life a little differently, I can still be successful at what I choose to do and not be in a state of constant fear and self, almost self-hatred sometimes to get there. So yeah, it's controversial, but that's okay. Before we completely leave the realm of fear, uh, <laughs> let's go back to something that we touched on just a little bit earlier, yeah. which is music performance anxiety. Yeah. Because I think that even in a place like Bloomington that is delightfully over its good musician quota for a town. Of course. Yeah. I'm not sure everyone really understands just how strong, uh, how pervasive this yeah. phenomenon is. Yeah. Things like how many professional musicians don't tell anyone that they take beta blockers, for example. Yeah. You know, this is a big deal. Yes. And it's either a dirty secret we don't talk about or something that we're not generally aware of. So I'd love it if you could tell me about some of the things that you've noticed in terms yeah. of addressing that issue through mindfulness practices. Sure. That's a great point. So music performance anxiety, probably familiar to many people as stage fright, is something we've been investigating for a long time. In psychology, people have sort of looked at situational anxiety. In other words, what triggers a person to feel anxious? And some things should make you feel anxious. Oh my goodness, I'm one step away from falling from a building. Yeah, you should be anxious. You need that motivation. There you go. That's a good use of fear-based motivation. <laughs> but what we talk about music performance anxiety, and it's looked at in a lot of different ways, is essentially a level of physiological, cognitive, emotional angst that is so powerful that it prevents you from performing at your highest level, right? So here's the key. Some anxiety is actually okay. Anxiety in its most basic form is arousal. Your body needs to be ready to go, right? So you need some anxiety. When that anxiety becomes too elevated and we label it, and here's where I start to use the mindfulness thing, we label it as threatening, then it becomes sort of a pattern of thought that prevents us from enacting a particular intention, a particular way of performing or recalling how we've practiced and bringing it to the room because our senses, our cognition, our awareness is so overloaded by this particular pattern of thought. And the thing is, it's triggered. It's not something we choose when you tell a person, don't be anxious. (laughs) That doesn't work. Yeah, it's like telling people to calm down. Don't think of a pink elephant. Don't Exactly, that's one I use, right? So through your conditioning, through the way you've thought about things, through the way you frame the world, or the way you've accepted the world being framed through your mentors or teachers, and you just sort of say, well, that's what it is, you are gonna have anxiety. 
And so people with music performance anxiety, sometimes it's situational. They'll go into a recital and they'll pop and then they won't know what to do. They don't have techniques. Or sometimes it's just part of a more generalized sort of quality of they're generally anxious. <laughs> and so in a musical situation, they're going to be even more anxious because their baseline anxiety is already high. What mindfulness does, or at least the way we teach it, is that it deals with this in three different ways, at least in the way that I conceive of it. First, we learn to regulate the body physiologically. So we use breathing to calm the physiological state of the body down. So there are techniques that are adopted from research on vagus toning, for example, on the vagal nerve, which I won't get into because I'm not an expert on, but essentially communicating with your nervous system in such a way to tell it it's okay. And so we can do that through breathing and through just finding a way of getting into the body. Um, in other words, bringing attention to sensations in the body gets us out of this default mode network of thinking of the past or the future, right? And so you start with the body, you get some physiological grounding, which we teach in my institute as well. And then you say, okay, now that you're there, can you just be aware? So you're giving yourself the ability to have some space from the fact that, wow, I'm super aroused. Where is that? Well, anxiety might be felt in a particular part of the body. Can I look at that? And we find is when you are aware of something, and there's pretty good research to indicate this, just activating awareness of something tends to reduce the power of that particular experience. And what I mean by that is it reduces your reactivity to it or your desire to either push it away or engulf it like in craving. And so in this case, you want to push it away. You just watch it. It kind of settles itself. The next thing we do is we ask people in mindfulness, what's your attitude towards that? So basically, this is the idea of what story are you telling yourself about it? Now, if you are constantly in the mind frame that your thoughts are your reality all the time, rather than your thoughts are occurring, and sometimes you have absolutely no control over them. In other words, right now, if I sat here, I'd have 100 thoughts in 20 minutes. Some of them don't matter. <laughs> They're just mental secretion, right? So white noise. White noise or images or whatever. So if we don't take a moment to go, wait a minute, what's that thought? What's the narrative about this particular anxiety right now? And we don't give a chance to notice it and let it go, what we call de-reifying and choosing something new, then it's going to captivate us. So if I'm having anxiety, I can say, oh my goodness, I can feel the physiology. I can feel it arising. If I don't catch it, my little pattern of thinking might say, I'm going to mess this all up. And now that loop is very difficult. But if I slow down, breathe, bring my physiology out, notice and say, wow, I'm thinking right now, this is going to be terrible. What's another way to think about this? And at that moment, I can say, I'm excited. I've worked really hard. Of course, I'm excited about this, right? And actually believing that that option is just as real as this is going to be a disaster. Because in reality, at that point, they're both potentials. And having the wherewithal to say, I'm going to choose my reaction to this. Because once I label this anxiety or this physiological arousal something different, I have a better chance of actually performing at a higher level. I have some control over that moment. I'm here. I'm not in some imagined future where everything falls apart or something from the past where, oh my goodness, it did fall apart. And practicing this skill over and over again tends to reduce the sense of anxiety in people. And at least in one of my studies, we found people that meditate at least once a week, it doesn't even matter what kind of meditation they do, tend to report lower music performance anxiety and less social perfectionism. In other words, they're less worried about what people think about them. Now, this is a chicken and egg question. I mean, maybe it wasn't the meditation that did it. Maybe people are drawn to meditation who already have these dispositions. I'm going to venture that it might be the case, but I tend to see changes in people over time that tell me, no, 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 I think when you teach people this set of mental skills, physiological, mental, self-regulatory skills, their anxiety is reduced because they have some control over it, some choice about what to do. And it isn't repression. And it isn't having to take something. For you. you can take a beta blocker and still have horrible thoughts. 
your physiology might be affected. Or you can do a cognitive psychology thing where you reframe something, but your body is still in a state of shock. So working on those levels of awareness where your awareness can touch those two things and reframe them, I think is where mindfulness has a really powerful role. Now, uh, you let an expensive word slip a couple minutes ago, and I'm going to ask you to take me to school on it. Great. You said the word reify or de-reify. Yes. So what is de-reification? It's a great term. And I stole this word from, um, this is is emerging in models of mindfulness from people like Cliff Sarin, who runs the Shamatha Project in California, long-term meditation studies. John Dunn, who is at the Center for Healthy Minds, who's an expert on Tibetan Buddhism and Buddhism in general, but it also has some training in cognitive psychology, and that's what's great about Center for Healthy Minds. They're not just talking about meditation or mindfulness from the perspective of science. They're trying to ground it in where it came from in its ethical components and trying to do research that touches upon all these things so that you don't you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Yeah, it, this obviously was going on before we studied it scientifically. So Reification is a term that they use for stickiness of mind. Some folks, when they have a thought, believe that thought is real. That thought presents itself in their awareness, and they become so fixated on it that they might have a physiological reaction. John Dunn uh, does this really interesting thing uh, where he teaches reification by having people imagine a strawberry. And I stole this from John, and I give him credit when I do it. But essentially, he has you imagine a strawberry, and he takes you through this and just imagine the strawberry and its color and what it smells like. And then he'll ask people when they start salivating, and people will raise their hands. And you'll say, well, where's the strawberry? Well, there's no strawberry there. Images in your mind have the capacity to enact a whole host of physiological conditioned responses, mental, emotional conditioned responses, that if you know, it's a strawberry, great. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's an image of you uh, falling down, uh, really uh, messing up a performance 20 years ago, and all of a sudden it's in your mind and it's stuck there and you're reifying it, it's going to affect you in a way that is not going to be conducive to you performing well. Dereification is learning. It deals with the ability to noticing when thoughts like that arise in the mind and then being able to let them go. So de-reifying, reifying meaning we strengthen it and it becomes real, which again is not bad in and of itself unless that particular thought has a negative connotation or is getting in the way of what you need to do at that particular moment, right? And so in a performance, you don't want to reify those kinds of thoughts. I don't think you want to reify thoughts at all. I think you want to be present and thinking about how you want to perform. So we teach people, first of all, you have to be aware that this is happening. If you're daydreaming all the time, you have no idea that this is even going on. We sort of click that salience network in the mind and we make you go, whoa, I noticed I'm distracted by what? Oh, a thought. Wait a minute. That thought's terrible. And if I start ruminating, I'm going to end up in that ruminative state. I'm going to forget what's going on here. This is the kid waiting for the report card as you're trying to talk to them you know, the week after finals. They're listening to you, but they're waiting on an email to see whether they got an A- minus or not. So they're not really there. They're feeling, oh, I'm going to get an A-, minus. You know, I'm going to get a B+. Derification is the process of letting that go. Some people call it decentering. There's a lot of different ways to study this. But what's fascinating is that aspects of this particular type of mental skill do show that human beings that do this <laughs> in laboratory settings or through therapy, they have a less reactive response to the stimuli. In other words, they don't crave particular stimuli as much, and they don't necessarily ruminate about them either. It's really letting go of stuff that you don't need at that moment. Well, in that case, it sounds like dereification is something that happens pretty much by the second when you meditate. Exactly. If you catch it, <laughs> right? So we didn't talk, you know, what's a basic mindfulness skill, right? So once you sit in a particular posture and you have an intention, but this is really important, you say, well, what's my intention? My intention during the next 10 minutes is not to beat myself up when I get distracted, but I'm going to see if I can focus on my breath. 
breath is in the present moment, pretty simple. Bring your attention to your breath. So now you're focusing. You're getting that executive network on to sustain attention on something as like the breath, right? Okay, so you're practicing a skill. That skill is really critical if you want to be a good musician or good at life. Period. Or exist. Or exist, right? I have to be able to focus, right? I can't be completely distracted. And you notice it's a pretty boring thing to attend to your breath. So your mind's going to go whoop. And some people think what happens there is some evidence that the default mode network turns on. That's the part of you that sort of imagines the past, relives the past, imagines the future, is concerned with self, ideas about the self, right? That clicks on. And that shows you all sorts of images or it gives you sensations or brings stuff to mind. If you notice that that's happening as you're attending to your breath, you can say, I'm either going to follow one of those dots, and that's classic rumination or mind wandering, although mind wandering is less effortful. Basically, mind wandering just sort of happens. Rumination or mind wandering can happen if those thoughts come into your mind and you forget you're supposed to be what? Noticing your breath? So part of this is I notice my breath, I turn on my awareness system, I notice that thought, and then I can do one or two things. Just noticing actually sometimes will just cause you to go back to the breath. You'll go, oh my goodness, I'm distracted. Back to the breath, right? Back to the conversation you're having. Back to the practice sequence you've engaged in. Back to driving. Back to washing. It doesn't matter what the object is. It's that we're bringing our minds back right there. Now, let's say I do catch it. If I can't disengage from it, then I start using some mental prompts. For example, that's just a thought. Or can I let that thought go for right now and attend to it later? Or notice that you're having thoughts and don't be judgmental about them. Just say, that's just a thought. Let me return to the breath. So there's a sort of an intermediate step of dereification. So dereification is what's happening during meditation, but it can also happen in everyday life when you're just deciding to either flood your attention and sustain on whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing or noticing these distractions and letting them go. There's no such thing as sustained attention for most people that never leaves its focal point. That's just not what human minds do, right? That might be the case with Olympic-level meditators. You know, Buddhist monks have spent 20, 25 years doing this in a cave. But for most of us, just catching it is enough to say, I can return to the present moment. I can be here with you, Aaron, instead of at lunch, which I didn't have today. And I'm, you know, my, my stomach is sending me those signals pretty soon. <laughs> so right? you want to be there. So I want to be there. But right now, <laughs> it's not a useful thought at the moment. So you, Frank, are a conductor. Uh-huh. You're also an instrumentalist. Yeah. For you personally, independent of teaching and yeah. research, how does mindfulness manifest itself in your own musical process? That's such a good question. Um, so for me, I noticed the first time I was fully aware of what was going on in front of me without a representation in my head of what was supposed to be going on as a conductor. So I can tell you my first sense of mindfulness, I was conducting Von Williams Symphony Number no. 2. It was a high school orchestra, actually. And I remember standing up on stage, and for the first time, all that was in my mind at that moment was music. It wasn't labels of the music. I wasn't thinking, this is a C sharp, this is a D, the bass is start here. I could actually hear it in my mind. I was looking at the orchestra, and my body just went, that's what I should be attending to while I monitor this orchestra. That's it. And then my body responded in a natural way. So I had been meditating for a long time there, and I noticed for the first time I wasn't distracted by thoughts like, how should I look here? Rather, what does the music need me to do here at this moment with this group so that I can get the best possible effect? Now, what's that best possible effect? For me, it's always a blend of what's in my head and what that orchestra can actually do. It's a nice meeting in the middle because orchestras are organisms. They're, you know, 100 people that are all thinking and feeling So for me to sort of imagine that I'm going to impose my will on them might be a nice fantasy, but that's not going to happen. And that might actually get in the way. For me as a conductor, what it does is it makes me present with the task at hand, which is how can I help these musicians bring this music alive 
in a way that is responsive and focused and meaningful? And how do I do that without thinking about things like, what do I look like? Oh my gosh, that, that person messed up. Now I'm mad at them and I forget to cue the bases. Or I gave them this nasty look, which, yeah, I, look, look at what I did, which might haunt them for 20 years and ruin their career. Now, don't look at the horns when they're going to articulate a passage, you know, where they're having to play a high note because you're going to scare them, that kind of stuff. Multi-sensory awareness in the present moment. That's how it affects me as a conductor. And I've got to tell you, I'm a much better conductor because of that than I used to be. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Frank Diaz, associate professor at the Jacobs School of Music and specialist in mindfulness meditation. You voiced some concerns earlier that mindfulness went from something that people didn't know about to something that was a bit of a buzzword that was kind of in danger of becoming a, a panacea. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems that even if we define mindfulness pretty loosely, it can have positive effects on just about everybody in just about every <laughs> walk of life. Yeah. So what do you think is unique about music and how teaching it and learning it and performing it can be affected by mindfulness practices? Oh, wow. You know, I don't know that it's unique. And then that's a good question. And I said, notice I said, I don't know, because I haven't thought about that actually in that way. I would say that one thing that music presents to us, at least when we perform it, perform it with others, is that in order to do it well, you cannot be in the future or in the past. Really fine groups, whether they're young groups or older groups, senior groups, middle schoolers, I think one of the qualities is responsiveness to the present moment. They seem to be responsive to each other because they have enough bandwidth in their awareness to, oh, Aaron's going to do this thing now, and I need to respond, and I need to have some variability in the way that I do this. And so because there's so much to do in music, you can't waste any of that bandwidth on things like I'm going to mess this up or this is not going to go well or I'm overly involved with what people think about me, right? So one thing that mindfulness does, and I think the arts do in general, first is they get us in our body because mindfulness is, by the way, an embodied practice. That's one of my qualms with the way mindfulness is defined in psychology. It's all thoughts, but no, I can walk mindfully. I can wash the dishes mindfully. As a matter of fact, mindfulness is a state of mind I can enact in any physical action that I do simply by being aware and responsive to what's going on right now. To me, music provides an incredible opportunity for enacting mindfulness because it requires so much from you that to not do it mindfully is part of the definition of what a bad performance might be. When you look at a group, you know, they're not communicating with each other or that person seems completely distracted or... They're not in their bodies. I can't feel it. However, if you watch someone like, you know, I always think of Yo-Yo Ma, who is a perfectly beautifully embodied human being when he plays. There is no doubt in my mind that he is feeling and experiencing everything that is in that music, whatever that piece that he's playing, both in his body, in his mind, in his heart, as he is performing. And it is spontaneous and happening in the moment. It's never the same twice. And that promotes a certain type of presence that I think people just go, that's amazing. And I respond to it. I think really great musicians are being mindful when they perform. Looking at your body of work, I get the sense that you believe pursuit of a thorough scientific understanding of the workings of the brain and the more spiritual pursuit of nourishing one's soul are not mutually exclusive. Absolutely not. Pre-tenure professor saying this thing, I'm always worried somebody's going to hear us and get mad at me, but, but <laughs> I think I'm going to be courageous enough. 
we are human beings and we experience the world, bottom line. Our experience is irreducible. We can't reduce it to anything. And in that experience, there are multiple levels of phenomena going on, including our emotions, our minds, our dispositions. Our... So to me, to be human is to experience the world and to seek meaning. And that doesn't always fit into the boxes, the arbitrary boxes we sometimes draw around phenomena in the sciences and say, this affects that and causes this and that and is reducible to this. I love the sciences. I love them. I think they're a great BS check on some of the causal attributions that we have. Oh, this made that happen. Well, let's look at that a little more carefully. I think the, both of them are really critical. And the idea that they are separate things that need to be attended to without interaction, to me, is an old way of thinking. There are plenty of scientists now, especially in meditation science, who are interested in the idea of neurophenomenology, where you look at the phenomenology of an experience, and then you look at the neural correlates, and you see how do they relate to each other. Now, you're not trying to reduce one to the other. What you're simply stating is mind is happening in matter, matter is happening in mind, and we don't really know what the difference between those two things are necessarily. We can debate it till the cows come home, but we can't experimentally test it, at least not at that level, right? This is why we have consciousness studies. And no one has solved <laughs> the hard problem of consciousness yet, right? So one worker way around that is to respect both sides of that and to say, is this a question that is a scientific question or is this a question that's a feeling, phenomenological, irreducible question, more complex than we currently have the ability to measure? Both those things inform my work, and I think they're both critical. And I think part of what attracts me to the field of meditation is that it is a contemplative practice and requires the reporting of things that are going on inside experience that cannot necessarily be seen as those experiences when you're putting someone in an fMRI or an EEG. You can see correlates of that experience that are important indicators of brain activity and perhaps cognitive functions, but you're not seeing the thing. I don't see the elephant in your brain. I see the neural correlates of the elephant. I don't see the feeling of intention in your brain. I might see the neural correlates of that. So let's be humble and say, what do these two sides of human thinking, cognition, experience, understanding, how do they overlap, fit together, how are they different? So both are important to me. Do you struggle with it at all, or do you encounter resistance in academia? <laughs> Absolutely. There's a long-standing debate about, especially in some disciplines that, you know, experience is irreducible. To talk about it in any kind of scientific terms is just nonsense. And the other side of this is, you know, no, consciousness and experience are epiphenomena of the brain, and they happen because our neurons fire in a particular way, and we're going to figure it out, right? And you have those two camps, and I'm, I'm generalizing. I don't think there's anybody that's that purely committed to one side or the other. There's lots of things in the middle in that continuum, but I still think that in general, when I speak about Things like phenomenology of meditation among real hardcore scientists that are just interested in what the brain does, they don't really care. That's not what they're interested in. And when I speak about sciences with my, you know, I'm a long-term meditator. I belong to several meditation groups. I teach secular meditation and teach meditation in a Zen Buddhist context. When I speak to those folks, they're not quite as interested in knowing about the brain. They think, well, what you're trying to do is prove meditation through the brain, which is not what anyone's trying to do anyway. Uh, well, that's not true. Maybe some people are. And then on the other hand, we get people who say, well, you know, these people are reporting these experiences, but we don't really know until something changes in the brain. I think it's a really silly way of thinking about this. I think a much better way of thinking about it is how do these two things relate to each other? And in that relationship, I think you start getting deeper insights into what it might mean to map consciousness, map introspection, map mindfulness, map any of these things that seem so ephemeral or elusive to us in a way that helps you understand the biological mechanisms but doesn't reduce them. So, yeah, we have a long way to go, I think. 
You mentioned that you participate in several meditation groups, that you teach meditation. goes a bit deeper than that, though, the fact that you are an ordained lay meditation <laughs> teacher in yeah. the Soto Zen tradition. This yeah. kind of brings a different uh, resonance to the term practicing what you preach. Yeah, yeah. How has that been for you? Yeah, that was a hard choice. I've always been sort of, and religious scholars get really mad when I say this, a secular Buddhist. I was attracted to the idea that Buddhism presented a worldview that resonated with what I thought was going on. However, I was never really interested in the metaphysics as explained, I think actually poorly explained, like the idea of reincarnation and things like karma, which after reading about them in more depth actually don't mean the things I thought they meant. <laughs> so what I would say is that for a long time I was a secular Buddhist, but I practiced Zen meditation. And what I love about Zen meditation or the Zen tradition in general, specifically Soto Zen, which is what I practice, which comes from Dogen, who is a 12th century Zen master and philosopher from Japan, is that the point of that type of meditation was not what was written. So it wasn't scripture. It wasn't Buddhism as explained in long text. It was about sitting down and experiencing the world. In other words, meditating so that your meditation, your experience through meditation informed your worldview. People attribute this saying to the Buddha, don't trust what I say, just sit down and see if it makes sense for you, right? It's sort of the way of talking about that. And so this had deep effects on me as a meditator because you come with the idea, I don't know. Rather than I know, you come to meditation saying, I don't know what is actually presenting itself in front of me. And so that filter starts to back up a little bit. I don't know you could ever get rid of the filter as a human, but maybe it starts to dissipate a little bit and you start to see things a little differently, right? That led to great insight. And at some point in my development as a Zen student, I realized that the poetic nature of Zen, the way that it explained things and held paradoxes together was very appealing to me. The only other thing I knew that could do that was music, where you can hold two things at once and it didn't have to be one or the other. It could be there. That paradox, that mystery was fascinating to me. And so it had a deep effect on me. And of course, I pursued Zen more vigorously as a meditator and went to many retreats and been studying with a teacher for over 15 years now, one specific teacher. And so they at some point said, hey, you might want to teach this. So for me, that just meant a particular type of ordination as a lay Zen teacher. And so I do that. What I find fascinating is that so many of the lay Zen teachers I know in the United States are scientists or psychotherapists or physicists or people who have studied the sciences deeply, but have hit a point where they say, I'm not ready to jump into some metaphysical theistic sort of uh, conception of the world, although they might. But Buddhism gives me, or at least Zen, gives me a perspective where I don't have to do that. I can be okay with not knowing, and I can see what my experience tells me about my world and life. And it's sort of, I'm going to use another word that scientists are not supposed to use, but maybe it's okay. It re-enchants the world. The world becomes enchanting again when you stop pretending you know everything. And that's what my Zen practice does for me, and that's what I try to teach in that context through meditation. The re-enchantment of the world, the letting go of our biases to discover that. It is quite remarkable that we're here in the first place, that we are aware. Everything after that is gravy and cake. I mean, it's just, wow, this is an amazing ride. Who knows at the end what any of this means or where it's headed, but let's engage in that process of trying to figure it out and experience it. Frank, it's implied by every facet of your work by the passion with which you pursue a life that's more focused and present and attentive and non-judgmental. Right now, the human race is not uniformly great at that, though. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Is this a physiological predilection? Is this a cultural byproduct? Is this a spiritual crisis? All of those. All of those. I'll start with a spiritual crisis. I think most 
people would say I'm spiritual, which means I want to feel connected to something bigger than just my ego and my own self. I sense there's something bigger here, right? And we have no vocabulary for that outside of our traditional religious practices anymore, unless you want to jump to new age thinking, which a lot of people are uncomfortable with for good reason, right? And so where's the middle ground? Where do we say, I sense that the world is magical and interesting and mysterious, and there's a lot we don't know and that maybe we can't explain, and being okay with that and not succumbing to the cynicism and skepticism, which is a necessary part of maturing as a human being, not taking everything at face value and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. As human beings, we tend to have self-serving thoughts that reinforce our beliefs and biases. That's great about science. At the same time, some people just reduce everything and say, well, the world's terrible. Everything's going to fall apart. Everything's a power struggle. Everyone's out to get everybody else. I think part of that has come from certain types of scholarship that goes on that is necessary, but at the same time, maybe overextends to aspects of people's lives that, you know, what, what what's a good way of saying this? I tell people, I don't know if the world has meaning or not, but human beings seek meaning. So therefore it's important. So whatever we say about meaning, we're seeking it. We don't have mechanisms that I think address that. So that's one part of it. The other part is our emphasis on difference and difference and difference and difference and difference has made it very difficult to take seriously the idea that as human beings, fundamentally, there are things about us that we share. None of us want to die. None of us want to suffer. All of us want to seek a good life. All of us want to protect our families for the most part. Most of us want to believe we are good people. And so when you get down to those fundamental things about humans, it doesn't erase the differences, but it gives us some ground to start understanding those differences in a context that is not you're against me and I'm against you, but we have to find a way to figure out how to make this work. Without getting into the field of cultural studies or critical theory or all those things which I think are really important, I wish and I hope, and I, I guess I'm going to say I pray, <laughs> that we find a way to reconnect with our basic humanity because that's where we're disconnected. We're so fractured as a culture and as a people. And um, I'm not sure what the academy is doing to help that sometimes. I think sometimes it's bringing up meaningful differences at the expense of some commonalities that I think are also important to identify and, and point out. Frank Diaz, you've given me a lot to sit and breathe and think about. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's awesome to be at IU with so many great thinkers and great musicians and in our beautiful little town of 80,000 people. It's pretty remarkable, so thanks for having me here today. Frank Diaz. Conductor, teacher of Zen meditation, and associate professor at the Jacobs School of Music. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, WFIU.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.